The book of Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus. Tucked in the midst of literally the names of scores of men were the names of four women. We might expect names like Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel or some of the key women from early on. The four women mentioned are much less likely candidates for the sort of immortality as each of their stories are quite peculiar. The first woman mentioned is named Tamar. As you recall, her story is somewhat unsettling. She was married to one of the sons of Jacob's son, Judah. Her husband died and as per custom, she married his brother so that the brother could carry on the family lineage in his brother's name by proxy. He actively worked at not fathering a child for his brother and he too died. She waited for the next brother to become old enough, but he is not given to her. So instead, she dresses as a cult prostitute, seduces Judah, her father-in-law, and fathers a child through him. Tamar had two husbands, and the man who fathered her child was not her husband. Somewhat similar to the encounter that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman that Shen spoke about earlier this year, albeit on a slightly, slightly different scale. So as Jesus is meeting with Samaritan woman, possibly he's reminded of a story in his own lineage that someone applies. The second woman who's mentioned is Rahab. Rahab is the inhabitant of Jericho who welcomed the spies that Joshua sent into the land. She and her family were spared because she welcomed the spies. Rahab was a harlot. In fact, that might've been one of the reasons why men showing up at her door after dark did not raise a lot of alarm. The third woman mentioned in the line of Jesus is Ruth. The book of Ruth is often treated as a biblical love story. Ruth was a foreign woman, foreign widow of a Jewish man. She returned back to Israel with her mother-in-law Naomi after the death of her husband. In the course of time, she encounters a man named Boaz and Naomi coaches her on how to get his attack get his attention with a view to him marrying her, which in fact happens. We have here two foreign women, one woman who posed as a prostitute, one woman who actually was a prostitute, one who physically seduced a man. Each of these women had been with at least one other man prior to the man in the lineage of Jesus. Candidly, I don't know what that means, but it's curious to me. Certainly, this can be a bit upsetting to us. We love to think of his mother, the Virgin, and think of how pure and pristine his entering to the world would have been. But her heritage, her context, her even her actual DNA would have been filled with events such as this, and possibly these very events. The genealogical accounts in Matthew and Luke have some differences. Some suggest that Matthew is tracing through Joseph, while Luke is tracing the lineage of Jesus through Mary. Well, guess what? They both include the husbands associated with these three women. What the inclusion of these women demonstrates is that God can bless a mess. We do things in our lives which add all sorts of levels and complications and problems and difficulties. But God can and does intervene and bring something wonderful out of all of this. You will notice that did not mention the fourth woman in the genealogy yet. 
possibly more than any of the others, here we see that God can bless a mess because the fourth woman is Bathsheba. And the Bathsheba story is one huge stinking mess. Yet God brings something beautiful out of it. It begins in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. I am pregnant. Bathsheba's story begins in the context of King David. The David and Bathsheba event is one of the better known events in the Bible. Recently, I heard Chuck Swindoll refer to this event as the most talked about sin in the Bible, apart from the sin in the garden. I don't doubt that. Most of our focus is on David because he is such a key biblical figure. However, this event also defined the rest of Bathsheba's life. So let's take a glimpse at that today. We'll begin with, what do we know about Bathsheba? What do we know about Bathsheba? We see that she was the daughter of Eliam. Now there was an Eliam who was the son of one of David's counselors. So she may have been the granddaughter of one of his counselors, but we cannot know that for certain. What we do know is that she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. The Hittites were one of the Canaanite nations that were not totally wiped out when Israel re-entered the Promised Land. It is possible that Uriah was a descendant of these people and that he had chosen to join Israel and sever his ancestral ties. We also know that Uriah was one of David's mighty men of valor. This means he was not only a soldier of David's, but a noted soldier of David's. In the account, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Uriah likely was one of the king's men. We know that Bathsheba lived close enough to the palace for David to be able to see her from his rooftop. This presupposes that she was bathing in her own yard. Proximity to the palace strengthens the notion that Uriah was known and trusted by David because you would want your best soldiers closest to the palace in case the palace needed to be defended on very short notice. We know that Bathsheba was a beautiful woman. It would appear that David and Bathsheba did not know each other personally prior to this. This is based on the fact that David asked who she was. It is possible he knew who she was and he was asking in order to confirm what he thought to be true. But the more likely explanation is that they were not personally acquainted. And that is what we know about Bathsheba. We don't hear about her before this time. Well, what do we know about what happened? Bathsheba is bathing. Bathing outside would have been standard. 
there was no indoor plumbing. There would be private places where women could bathe, either in their own gardens or in public, public places designated for this. And a popular historical narrative is that she was bathing in a place which could only be viewed from above because the privacy was built around it for her bathing. We know that this was the season when kings went off to war. Her husband would have gone off to war. In fact, we know that he went off to war because David summons him back later. But David did not go off to war. Did Bathsheba know that David had stayed back? Or did she believe that she would have privacy to bathe? Note, how we view this account can be influenced by how we view Bathsheba. And how we view Bathsheba can be influenced by how we view this account. If Bathsheba expected privacy, did not know that David had stayed behind, then this was something that was intended innocently that turned out very, very badly. However, if she knew that David had not gone out with the army, Possibly she thought she could take a chance. What was the likelihood that he'd be looking down and seeing her? In which case, she was probably a little bit reckless, but not malicious. Conversely, what if she wanted to get David's eye, get his attention? What if she bathed knowing there's a good possibility he could see her from the roof of the palace? Well, in that case, she's showing very bad judgment. Whichever of those scenarios, we tend to land on the what was she thinking scenario. Why couldn't she have been more modest? Shouldn't she have shown more modesty? And then this never would have happened. Well, possibly even more to the point, how we view this account can be influenced by how we view David. And how we view Bathsheba can be influenced by how we view David. You see, David is a man after God's own heart. So we feel some obligation to try to always see the best in him and that can maybe lead us to turn a blind eye to his weaknesses. Consider this scenario. David is out for an innocent stroll one night, happens to see a beautiful naked woman and just can't help himself. Just can't help himself. Second situation, similar to the first, but with a the twist in terms of the fact that the woman is not there accidentally. David is out for an innocent stroll and a woman trying to catch his attention catches his attention and he cannot help himself. In one bad situation of events, second, he falls into a trap with Bathsheba as the bait. Both of these are variations of what I call the boys will be boys defense for sexual immorality. Because it presupposes that David could not help himself. And it presupposes that given enough temptation, men cannot help themselves. This is a disrespectful view of men because it implies that we can never show self-control, even though that's a fruit of the spirit. But far more so, Far more so, it's a disrespectful view of women because either they're objects of sexual desire and temptation only or they're sexual temptresses. And that is not a healthy view. 
Are men sexual beings? Are women sexually attractive? Yes. If you doubt that, read the book of Song of Solomon, coincidentally written by David and Bathsheba's offspring. But men are not merely sexual beings. Women are not merely sexual objects. And to view people as merely anything is to diminish the understanding of what it means to be created in the image of God. Oh, and by the way, I didn't even go with the scenario that David was up on the roof hoping to see something. But that doesn't fit with our man after God's own heart kind of view, does it? Well, in any event, David sees Bathsheba. David inquires after her, sends for her, and sleeps with her. Notice all the points where he could have stopped. That totally negates the boys will be boys and things just happened kind of defense. Well, wherever you find yourself on the continuum between this being completely consensual of David seducing Bathsheba, of Bathsheba seducing David, of David's influence and power making it so Bathsheba did not feel she could say no to him, they sleep together and a child is conceived. A married woman sleeps with a powerful married man and a child is conceived. The sort of storyline which you can find all the time in television, movies, and novels. What is more, her husband is known and trusted by the man she slept with. So this is not just infidelity. This is not just adultery. This is also betrayal. It is a huge mess. And David tries to fix the mess. And we don't know whether Bathsheba had visibility into this or not. But here's what we do know about Bathsheba. We know that she was a pregnant woman who could not possibly have gotten pregnant appropriately, living in a society which would be absolutely unforgiving once the truth was known. She would be living in literal fear for her life. Now, David being the king, he might get off okay because he's the king. But she was facing utter disaster with no hope. I mean, the best hope that she would have would be to live the rest of her life out raising her child as a pariah in society. Much more likely, much more likely she would not live to see that day. Pregnant woman could not have gotten pregnant appropriately in society to be unforgiving. Doesn't that sound a little bit like Mary, the mother of Jesus? Add on the fact that they probably both be experiencing the same kinds of anxiety, the same sorts of fears, same sorts of concerns, same sorts of lacks of hope. Physically speaking, in that context. Hmm. Yeah. Now, the methodology of becoming pregnant could not be far any further different than they currently are. But the sorts of emotional experiences that they faced, likely very, very similar. In any event, David tries to handle this. He has Uriah brought back from the front. 
under the pretext of giving information to him. Encourages him to go home for the night. Uriah declines. So that's the first opportunity for the child to be considered Uriah's lost. David brings him back, plies him with wine, gets him drunk. Uriah still does not go home. Finally, he sends Uriah back to the front and arranges for him to be killed in battle. David marries the widow, problem solved. Mess has been taken care of. Or so he thinks. Or so he thinks. Because we read that God is displeased with this. God is displeased. Does this sound to you like a little bit of an understatement? Wouldn't we expect a stronger word? Maybe a word like wrath, that God was filled with wrath at what David and Bathsheba had done. After all, the word wrath is applied to a number of things in Romans chapter 1, including things like being disobedient to parents. And if you doubt that, read the list. There's about 31 items. Why is he only displeased here? Because it is the same thing. We somehow feel that God's anger is on a scale, that he goes from mildly irritated about sin to wrathful. God is pleased or he is displeased. God is angry or he is not angry. There is not that middle ground that we want to find where we can sin just enough that he's only mildly irritated with us, but we're mostly on his good side. That does not exist. That does not exist. So God is displeased and he sends Nathan the prophet to David. Nathan confronts him and tells him that as a consequence, the child that has been born as a result of the sin is going to die. And that comes to pass. Consider all of this from Bathsheba's point of view. A year ago, she was the wife of one of David's key soldiers. One night, while bathing, she gets the attention of David and ends up sleeping with him. She finds herself carrying another man's baby. And there's no way that she can explain the pregnancy, so she has got no way out. Because she's still married. She's still married to Uriah. Until she isn't, because then she finds herself a widow. Then she finds herself married to David, the father of her child, even though he already has other wives and children. She had been married to a soldier. Now she's been married, now she is married to a king. She gives birth to her first child. And then the child dies. What a tumultuous year Bathsheba has had. If we were writing the story of God's justice, we might be tempted to fall into the trap of thinking the story should end here. We might be tempted to fall in the trap of saying, 
David and Bathsheba sinned and God removed the result of their sin from the equation. Therefore, they got what they deserved. Justice was served. Is justice served by a child dying after suffering for a week? Is that justice or is that tragedy? I do not believe that to be justice. Well, then we might say, well, God did show mercy because she should have died too. He let her live. He let her live. And there's now options to, to clean this up because David could send her away privately. He could look after her financial needs, but there'd be no need to hear from her again. So in that sort of scenario, that would work, right? Because we'd see that God's justice would prevail with just enough mercy to make it palatable for us. But that is not what we see here. This story is not just the story of God's justice. It is the story of God's grace and God's mercy, as well as God's justice. And the story goes on. Second Samuel chapter 12 and verse 24. What Nathan had promised has in fact happened, and the child has died. Verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went in with to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedediah, which means loved by the Lord. David and Bathsheba do not part. In fact, they stay together and they stay together in the biblical sense and they have another son. And what is more, God loves this son. And to make sure that everyone knows God loves his son, he speaks to Nathan. Spoke to Nathan about the first son, had one message. This son, Jedediah, loved by the Lord. Totally different circumstance. Out of their messy situation, out of their imperfect marriage, out of their imperfect context, out of everything that had been built upon sin and bad decisions, they gave birth to somebody that God did not just tolerate. He, in fact, loved. And on top of this, God has plans for the son. Going to 1 Kings, the context is, many years later, David is on his deathbed. He's fading fast. And the vultures are circling in the palace. And one of his sons, Adonijah, is arranging to have himself named as king. We pick up here, chapter 1, verse 11. Then Nathan asked, Bath asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king without our Lord David's knowing it? Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go into King David and say to him, My lord the king, did you not swear to me your servant? Surely Solomon your son shall be king after me and he will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? While you are still talking to the king, I will come in and confirm what you have said. 
Now, at a glance, this might appear this is a deathbed decision that David has made. But we'll see listed in Chronicles, David and Nathan had spoken about this. David and Solomon had spoken with this. Clearly, this was God's plan, not David's idea. This was how succession was to happen. The son who never, ever even would have existed without their sin was part of God's plan. And he is the one who's to follow in the kingly line. And, oh, by the way, in the line of Jesus. And it is curious and wonderful at the same time, yet bizarre, that it is Nathan who is advocating for a child of David and Solomon, of David and Bathsheba. Jedediah, loved by the Lord. He now knows it's different, but it's Nathan who's doing this. And if that's not bizarre enough, among the other sons of David and Bathsheba was one named Nathan. How, you can't make this sort of stuff up. On top of everything else, Bathsheba ends up with a position of status in the palace. We read, Nathan's consulting her. Solomon sets up a throne for her. People are bowing down to her. Adonijah appeals to her. A far cry from that pregnant woman with no options. God was able to bless in the midst of the mess. So this is Bathsheba's story. What do we think about Bathsheba? What do we think about Bathsheba? A question that keeps going on over and over in my head. And I'm not sure, not sure I have a satisfactory answer for it yet is if we did not know the end of the story, like we do now, how would we as the church respond to Bathsheba if she were to come through our doors? Bathsheba is a woman who entered into an extramarital affair with a married man. The married man knew her husband. So this involved betrayal as well as infidelity and adultery. Planned, unplanned, consensual, or whatever, she ends up pregnant as a result, as a result of this adultery. The married man, on top of this, he's a beloved figure, so there's scandal attached to her. People might even be wondering if maybe she did this deliberately to try to raise her status in life. She's married almost immediately after the death of her husband. Would that raise some eyebrows? The married man already had family and children. So she broke, she disrupted that there. She basically becomes a home wrecker, a home wrecker. We're told that kings are not to have multiple wives. Right? Deuteronomy 17 and verse 17 says, the king is not to take many wives or his heart will be led astray. So even David doing quote unquote the right thing was less than God's perfect plan. The marriage itself was part of not following God completely. And this is ongoing through to the end of David's life. And she seems to bubble to the top in the palace over other candidates who we might view as more, as more worthwhile, as more deserving. You know, my vote might go to Abigail because of the way that she treated David 
in the wilderness. So to summarize, she's the other woman, possible gold digger, certainly scandalous, quickly moved on from her first husband. She's a homewrecker. Her child becomes the favorite. Would we see the hand of God in this? Would we see God's mercy in her life? Or would we possibly only see somebody who made bad choices and not only got away from with them, but profited from them? Would we view Bathsheba primarily through the lens of God's judgment? Or would we also look for God's mercy? Would our inclination be to show her the error of her ways in order that she could begin to experience God? It is important to note that in this case anyway, God moved forward with David and Bathsheba from where they were. He didn't strip things back. He took that which is decayed, broken, shaky to begin with and built out from there. There was an opportunity after the death of the child for David to abandon Bathsheba, to send her away somewhere privately, live the rest of her life as a widow and we need never hear from her again. But that was not God's strategy here. Not only did God not separate them, he loved and blessed the result of their union. Our instinct probably would be to advise David to forsake the other woman, go back home and try to make things right. God built out from where they were and even more astounding added his blessing to it. Does that make you a little bit uncomfortable? Would that make us a little bit uncomfortable? There are a lot of scenarios and a lot of life decisions and a lot of lifestyle choices that we will encounter that make us uncomfortable. Situations where we do not instinctively and easily see God's hand and God making a bless, making a blessing in the midst of the mess. But does that mean that he is not at work? Does that mean that he is not at work? Does my comfort level really matter to God? Or sometimes is loving my neighbor as myself going to make me uncomfortable? Does my comfort level always represent God's character? I'm not convinced that my comfort level matters to God nearly as much as whether I learn how to love my neighbors myself. And we get confronted with situations like this, right? We get confronted with men and women who come from broken families and mis mismatched families and all sorts of circumstances. We may encounter people like Rahab who come from lifestyle choices which are degrading potentially. She was a, in the sex trade, right? Or embarrassing, or maybe a little bit scandalous. We may encounter people 
whose history is just a nightmare, such as Tamar. How do we love these neighbors as ourselves? How do we welcome them and encourage the ongoing work of God in their lives? Because their lives are not textbook. Their lives are a mess. Their lives are a mess. This series has been entitled More Like Us Than We Think. And as we're going through the Bathsheba story, you're probably thinking, well, this one doesn't apply to me at all. The details might not apply, but do the principles. Do the principles. Have you ever made a decision that you regretted? Have you ever made a decision that had long lasting consequences? Have you ever done something which could lead you to the point of shame or despair? Ever been associated with scandal? Something in your mess leaving you with a sense of hopelessness and no way out? A sense of hopelessness and no way out appears to be the connective tissue between the four women in the lineage of Jesus. A widow with no heirs forced to become pregnant through deception. A harlot in a city that was about to be invaded and wiped out. A foreign widow in a land where marrying foreigners was not best practice. A woman carrying another man's child after an act of infidelity, looking pretty bleak. God intervened where they were and hopelessness turned to blessing. None of these women would have had hope. None of these women would have had home None of these women would have had future without the hand of God. Blessing in the midst of their mess. Creating a mess should not ever be our default intention. But our lives often are a mess. Being in a mess did not disqualify these women from the hand of God in their lives. Our mess does not disqualify us from the hand of God in our lives. Being in a mess does not mean that God is finished with us. Isn't that how redemption works? So to close, I'll leave you to wrestle with the question that I'm still wrestling with. How would we as the church respond to Bathsheba if she were to come through our door? And we're going to continue to wrestle with this through the fall as we go further back into the book of Romans, because the first part of Romans speaks largely about people who are sinning and our response to them our response to them and learning how to love our neighbors ourselves when there's nothing lovable about our neighbor. That is the challenge. So more like us than we think Bathsheba really is.
because we too need God to bless our mess.